Welcome to the podcast. This is a recording of a webinar that Dan Markovitz presented. And um, in the, the workshop, the webinar that he did, he, he had people watch a few clips from the program Bar Rescue. And even though Dan had permission to, to use the clips in his teaching, we don't have permission. Um, we're not able to share the recording. So you do miss out a little bit on what the workshop experience was, but you can hear the, the, the discussion about the clips. If you want to go watch the episode uh, about the bar called Swanky Bubbles, it's actually season one, episode five of the show Bar Rescue. If you search YouTube for that, you can find the episode. You, can, you, can, you have to buy it. It's uh, $1.99. But I, I think there's still a lot you can get out of listening to the, the workshop, some of the, uh, the lecture um, and, and discussion that we have, I think, is still worthwhile, even without those bar rescue clips. So um, we want to thank you for listening. Please subscribe, rate, and review um, if the podcast is something you enjoy. And uh, we'll look forward to bringing you more content and more webinars in the future. Well, hello and welcome, everybody, to our Kinexus webinar. Really excited to be joined by, I'm going to call him a facilitator, not a presenter, because today is really more of a virtual workshop. So I'm really excited about the content and the approach that Dan is bringing to us today. Um, the, the title of the session, of course, is Better Decision-Making, Avoiding the Conclusion Trap and Other Pitfalls. I'm Mark Graven from Connexus. I'm going to play the role um, of, of host and help facilitate Q&A. Um, again, as a reminder for those who've just joined, I've put a link in the chat box. There are two worksheets that you can download to go along with today's session. So before handing things over, uh, and, and Dan you know, can introduce himself more, but um, I'm, I'm proud to call Dan uh, a, a friend and a collaborator on, on various things over time. Um, I think we met, what, 10, 11, 12 years ago? Quite a while then, hasn't it? It's been a while. We, um, I think, met through Lean Enterprise Institute circles, and I'm thankful for that. Um, but Dan is um, the founder and president of his firm, Markovitz Consulting. He's the author of uh, a couple of uh, books I really like. The first one called A Factory of One. The second, Building the Fit Organization. Now, I know that one was a Shingo Award recipient. So congratulations. The first one, the first one was also? Okay, that's what I that's what I thought. Amazon's going to have to give the new book cover with the Shingo <clears throat> logo on there. So yes, both books, and then his most recent book um, is called "The Conclusion Trap: Four Steps to Better Decisions." And Dan is going to introduce um, the, and, and give us some really useful um, concepts there. And and don't hold him against him, but he has an MBA, and I say that as an MBA. Um, graduate as well. But Dan has his MBA from Stanford. And he has a really unique and diverse background through um, his career in education, which um, I, I find adds a lot to the discussion. So um, with that, Dan, welcome and thank you for being here today. Let me let me turn it over to you. Uh, um, as Mark indicated, this is a uh, this is a presentation. It's a workshop, really, not a presentation based on my new book called The Conclusion Trap, which is available uh, at Amazon. Uh, you can also follow the links and get a whole bunch of downloadable material at theconclusiontrap.com. Um, I wrote this book because what I've seen in my years, not just as a lean person, as a consultant, but also when I used to work as a, when I used to have a real job, when I worked at ASICS, I spent about five years there in sales, marketing, product marketing, and product development. 
but I would see over and over again that that people, when they were faced with with problems, with things that weren't working quite right, uh, that they fall into one of three common traps. And these are just three of the most common ones. Certainly, there are more of them. But uh, oftentimes, companies would spend money to solve a particular problem. Um, and so, when faced with declining sales, with uh, poor employee engagement, with um, with uh, order errors, whatever it happens to be, um, throw money at it and hire consultants, buy new computers, um, uh, introduce a new training program, whatever it happens to be, and that should take care of it. Alternatively, um, a second thing they would try to do is reorganize because if your company's not working very well, let's reorganize, we'll shift the seats, we'll go from a functional uh, organization to a matrix organization or back to functional, and that should solve the problem. But of course, it, it wouldn't always do that as well uh, either. And thirdly, of course, there is the technology solution because if it's not working, what we really need is an SAP system, is an Oracle system, an MRP system, is new computers, new software, new hardware, you name it. Um, and inevitably, of course, it wouldn't work. It would make a broken process or a problem that was uh, that you were running into uh, more expensive and faster, but it wouldn't eliminate the problem. And what I saw over and over again was that companies were spending time, were, were, were making these mistakes over and over and over again. Uh, my book is, is filled with lots of examples, but the one that uh, really was the, the uh, genesis of, 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 uh, of my book was a story that was told to me by a friend who has a software development firm. They make custom software things for like for say dialysis machines or diesel engine repair, um, things like that. And uh, a gentleman came to him, he runs a, a logistics company uh, that, that had grown over the years by acquiring uh, company, smaller companies that were geographically disparate. So he had brought them all together into one family um, the Northeast, the Northwest, the Southwest, and so on. And he came to my friend and said, listen, we're not doing a good job of passing leads from one division or one geography to another. And that's really how we can make a lot of money, uh, but we're not doing it. So all the, all the movement is now happening within a particular region, say the Northeast, and we're not taking advantage of the opportunity to help people move from the Northeast to the Southwest. My friend said, well, okay, I could certainly help you design that software, but um, what I'd like to do is talk to the users of it or the potential users, which are your salespeople inside. And, and the president said, no, you don't need to do it. What I really want is an app because we've cobbled together our business out of all these disparate smaller companies. And the truth is it's kind of clunky and it's inconvenient and people gripe about it a lot. My friend said, Fair enough, but still the way I operate is I need to talk to the users to understand what they need and what they want, and then I can do it for you. The guy says, you don't need to, and my friend says, no, I, this is the way I operate. So, okay, fine. So my friend talks to the potential users, the sales folks around the country, and what they say is, you know, the software is clunky, and sure, it would be nice if we had a smartphone app, but you know what the real issue is? If we pass a lead from the Northeast to the Southwest, uh, we don't get a commission on it. The guys in the Southwest do, not the guys in the Northeast. So my friend hears this a few times and he goes back to the president and says, hey, listen, I hate to tell you this. Uh, I could certainly design the, the smartphone app, which would be cool, but it's not gonna make a difference because your issue 
is not a technology issue. Your problem, the problem you're dealing with is not technology. The problem you're dealing with is a bonus problem or an incentive problem. And the guy says, yes, but our software is clunky and I want an app. And my friend says, I can build you an app and charge you stuff, but it's not going to fix the problem. The guy says, yeah, but I want an app. And well, they didn't end up working together. But this is an example of how the president of this company didn't truly understand the problem he was dealing with. And so he had this knee-jerk response to go with technology and of course, spending money to buy that technology. So we see this, this kind of issue all the time. And why does it occur? Well, um, for those of you who are familiar with this book, it came out, I think two years ago now, Daniel Kahneman's Thinking Fast and Thinking Slow. And he really touched on exactly what's going on here. That we've got two kinds of thinking systems. System one is fast, it's unconscious, it's automatic. It's the kind of stuff that we use that we, if you're walking in the woods, and you see a snake or hear a rattle, you jump back because you don't really want to do an assessment of whether it is a poisonous snake or not, how far you have to be around it, whether the snake is in a coiled position and can strike you or not. You just jump back because it's not worth trying to figure out whether it's dangerous or not. And this is how human beings have survived uh, through 40,000 years, at least as, uh, as social animals. Um, this is the kind of thing that we use when it, I say two plus two equals, and without even thinking about it, you come up with four. At least I hope you come up with four. Um, system two thinking is, by contrast, it's slow, it's laborious, it's conscious, it takes energy and time, and you use this for complex decisions. So if I dropped you in the middle of Tokyo and I said I need you to use the subway system or the train system, which is notoriously complicated, uh, and comprehensive, and I want you to get from point A to point B, it would take you a while to do it. If I told you to multiply 17 by 46, you would need a pencil and paper, unless you're a savant, and you'd be using this system to thinking. And the problem comes when we use the wrong system, the wrong thinking system. So because system one is low energy and is fast and is easy, and you're feeling stressed and overwhelmed by all the things that happen during the daily basis, uh, you want to default to system one when you really should be using system two. You want a smartphone app when what you really need to do is understand that your employees don't need an app. What they need is a better compensation system. And that's where we tend to go wrong. You can certainly read more about all this in Daniel Kahneman's book or in any one of the articles written about it. Um, there's something else that I think... Uh, ties into this. And, and Nick, Nassim Taleb, who is famous for his book called The Black Swan, he wrote this, and I think it really captures the essence that when we face limits of knowledge, in other words, when we don't know everything, which is all the time, we resolve the tension by squeezing life in the world into commoditized ideas. So here we have our logistics president of the logistics company. He doesn't know everything. He hasn't talked to all of his, his uh, salespeople. So he goes into the crisp commoditized idea, which is a smartphone app, because everyone knows that all cool companies that are doing well, they have apps. You have to have an app. And so it squeezes the whole, we squeeze life um, into these things, and we lose, uh, we lose the ability to really think deeply about what's happening and what the nature of the true problem is. So I would argue as a countervailing force, so what we can do is take four steps to make our decisions better. In other words, to shortcut our tendency to go from, to go into that uh, system one thinking, where we just leap to conclusions. 
And for those of you who are familiar with the Lean Playbook, a lot of these will look very familiar to you. And in fact, they're essentially the left side of an A3. What we wanna do is go and see, so we really understand what's happening. We wanna frame the problem, and, and we're gonna be spending a lot of time on these two things. We wanna frame the problem and frame it properly. We wanna to learn to think backwards, and thinking backwards is my way of talking about using something like a fishbone or other tools in order to do, to understand what's driving the, or creating the symptoms that we see. And then finally, using some sort of uh, five wire, that kind of thinking to understand what is it that's contributing to these factors so that we can actually address the root causes. Now, we've all heard about going to the Gemba and going and seeing, but I know that in my time, I haven't actually seen a whole lot of uh, uh, explanations of exactly what to do when you go to the Gemba. And one thing I want to do today in this virtual workshop is to have a virtual Gemba visit to, um, to see what, it, what you can actually see and what you should be thinking about when you go to the Gemba, when you go and see. And we're also going to practice framing and understand how, how framing gives us a different perspective on a problem and a deeper understanding of what the true problem is. So today's focus, again, is going to be on these first two steps of going and seeing and framing. So moving into going and seeing. Uh, John Le Carre, the, the novelist, uh, wrote something that I think is that every lean person should have uh, tattooed on uh, or, or uh, in, in carved into his or her desk about how a desk is a dangerous place from which to view the world. You don't really understand what's happening without actually seeing it which brings us to the difference between data and facts. To me, data is a and sort of an anemic two-dimensional version of reality. It's the spreadsheet, it's the report. It's things that tell you what's happening, but you don't really get the full texture and flavor and context. Um, Taichiono uh, wrote, of course, the data is important, manufacturing, but I place the greatest emphasis on facts. Now, I wanna be clear, my wife looks at this and she says, I still don't get it. I have no idea what the difference is with data facts. It seems like the same thing to me. Data to me is something that says, for example, your machines break down, your OE is whatever, 88%. The facts are that the machines are leaking oil. The facts are that the machines are not maintained very well. That the last preventative maintenance cycle what you missed the last preventative maintenance cycle. Mark, I know that you've had issue experience with that very much at Livonia, at the engine plant. Um, facts tell you what's going on at a deeper level and give you a total picture of what's happening. I would just add one thought, Dan. I mean, I think sometimes data can be inaccurate, right? So you have um, I had a funny picture I used to use in training about data and visual management. It's a bank digital sign that says the temperature outside is 214 degrees or something. Oh, like that. Yes. <laughs> that, that, that number might be data, but it's clearly not a fact. Right. Um, you know, I, 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 another example of that, I think, is a um, when I worked at ASICS, we were having problems with errors in uh, order entry errors. And so customers were getting shipped the wrong shoes and we had an awful uh, big expense in paying return freight from retailers that didn't want those shoes that they didn't order, makes sense. And so we could look at the data and see that there were a certain number of errors. We could look at the data and see what our uh, return rate was and the return cost, but we didn't really know what the facts were. And so it was easy to think, well, what we really need to do is either A, hire better customer service reps, whatever better means, or alternatively, we could um, 
put them through a long, uh, a, a more elaborate, more intensive training program. Okay. But what we found when we went to see things was the facts, which was that the order, we just entered, uh, created a new order entry, uh, uh, created a new order entry system. And the screens were terribly laid out. This is before WYSIWYG and, and Windows was all black screens with the green cursor. And it was really complicated. And, and the, um, the customer service reps had to move all over the screen with tabs in order to get the right information in the right place. The facts were that it was really hard to work with the screens. And when we looked at that, we could see, oh, it's not that we need better reps, whatever better reps are. It was that we, need, we needed screens that were better laid out, data versus facts. Uh, of course, you get the facts as Brent Guava, uh, a friend of mine and a colleague in the lean consulting world would say, you get that at uh, the crime scene. The crime scene is where you get all of the information that's really important. So what we wanna do is visit the crime scene. What we wanna do is see what we can learn. Uh, we wanna see, but we wanna go and see what's actually happening. And this is where the first video comes in. This comes from a, um, a show called Bar Rescue. Some of you may or may not have, uh, have, may have seen it. It's a reality show. So I wanna, I wanna uh, start by saying it's a reality show. So things are sort of hyped up and, um, and uh, uh, um, a little more dramatic and theatrical perhaps than they are in real life. But I think it gives you a good idea of what I'm talking about. So this is what we're going to do. You guys have the worksheets for today. Uh, I'd like you to take a look at the first worksheet. This is what, go, what we're gonna use to spur conversation in the chat box. Um, and I'm now about to send you a link. And I just put the link to the workshops in the chat box again. Um, and Dan, make sure you're sending to all panelists and attendees. Right on. Good show. We learned um, from my mistake. Yeah. Yes, exactly. So this is a link to a video. Uh, this video is two minutes and, and 17 seconds long. What I'd like you to do is watch this video and then take a look at the worksheet that I sent that uh, you've downloaded, hopefully. Um, I'd like you to look at that, and we're going to use that as the basis for our discussion, uh, whether we're not sure we'll first try just using chat discussion. So I'm going to give you a few minutes to watch that. Uh, you should have no problems loading it, but if you do, please put it in the chat box if you're having issues accessing it or something like that. And um, we'll reconvene in about three minutes or so, and we'll start talking about what you saw. Okay, so we've got one response here. The owner isn't there to see the problems. Okay. Thanks, Tina. Well, I'm going to hold off for another 30, another one minute or something, just to make sure that everyone else gets a chance to finish watching and think. Anyone else, though, who has finished watching, feel free to start uh, chiming in. We have another comment. Um, it's built on a short-term premise. No, fo no focus on customer needs and values. Lack of ownership and accountability, ownership accountability, but really not enough data or facts. It was a fad. Concept of the bar is outdated. Novel idea that doesn't appeal to enough people to last for long. Trend bar, there isn't enough fashion. One customer yeah. says there aren't enough women. It's boring. Owner isn't <laughs> present. Concept is terrible. Exterior looks like it's falling apart. Oversaturated market ownership doesn't seem 
heavily invested in success. Not really sure, but the consultant's idea is that it's based on a trend that's past, that seems reasonable, not very attractive. Um, Dan, can you repost the video link? Uh, well, uh, yeah. Well, first, okay, here is the first video link. So you had somebody who joined late. Those who are late. And, and, part of, and part of why we're doing it this way, we're not able to include the videos in the recording. Right. Unfortunately, it's uh, due to copyright issues. I can't include that. So um, for those of you who have who have uh, came in, it looks like you know, a lot of people are talking about <laughs> I did like that joke, that creepy guy who says there are not enough beautiful ladies here. Uh, <laughs> thank you for bringing that one up, Anton. Um, yeah. So there's a whole bunch of issues there that you can see for sure. Um, and I'm glad you got to see this. It's interesting. Uh, of course, uh, the host, John Tapfer, uh, says that, uh, you know, it's a terrible name and it's a bad concept. So that sounds like you may be on target. But what I'd like to do now is I'm sending you a new link. This is for a one minute section, 58 seconds technically. And what I'd like you to do is watch this and then we're gonna go through this again. I want you to think about what's your impression now about what the problem is and why do you think that? So this is the problem here. You've seen some more, you have a different idea. Certainly John Taffer has a different idea. Remember in the beginning he said, I think the problem is that it's a, let me see, I actually wrote it down. I believe the problem with Flanky Bubbles is that it's a trend bar and many of you guys have picked that up. Now what do you think? Oh, now we have accountability, responsibility, or lack of accountability, lack of responsibility, lack of planning, lack of practice, no partnership, no ownership, no teamwork, interiors in bad shape. No collaboration. So this is interesting, lack of acceptance. Uh, obviously, there are, I don't know, there are 103 of you, so I'm not necessarily seeing everyone's, um, everyone's feedback, but we've shifted now in general from this, largely from it's a trend bar or it's a crappy name or it's ugly or things like that. Um, someone says still owner, owner engagement. There was certainly some of that. But now people are looking at other issues, which I think is um, very interesting. You're now starting to look at the people there. You're looking at the um, you're looking at the investment. You're looking at vision, and so you're seeing things a little bit differently. So to me, we're still going. We still have one more round. How do we know if we're doing well? We lack of planning. Um, we still have another round of this, but what's interesting to me is that you've seen a little bit more and you now have a slightly better idea of what's going on, or at least you have a fuller perspective of what's happening. You've gone from just, it's a trend bar to seeing how the owners are interacting, what their presence is like and so on. And this is exactly what we're supposed to be getting at. I think sometimes, when you're confronted with your own reality, when you're confronted with your, with your workplace, you sometimes miss the forest for the trees or because you know so much, you tend to forget what you should be looking at because this is, yes, it's theatrical, yes, it's TV, but it's an entirely different environment. And I think it helps you see how your perception deepens, your understanding deepens by watching more and watching how people interact and talk. 
So what I want to do now is go into Swanky Bubbles, part three. This section of the video is a little bit longer. This is two minutes and 45 seconds. So we're gonna do this one more time. What I'd like to, is a sense of what is actually the problem and why you think that. So here is the link to the video and I'll be back with you in three minutes or so or three and a half minutes. People are not weighing in yet, so maybe they're still watching or thinking. Um, maybe frame the question again. So same, same as we've done the first two, here we go, first two times, we just finished. Thanks, Chad, appreciate the, that. No clear expectations, accountability. <laughs> the owners have no idea what they're doing. <laughs> Lack of autonomy and trust, making it up as they go, poor management. Owner's not there to see the problems. Yeah. Lack of leadership. I see someone, Sheila says they need to start from scratch with new leadership, which is uh, maybe true, although that would be a solution and not necessarily the problem. Clueless. Well, that's right. <laughs> that says a fair bit. Not involved in staff and learning, accountability. There's a lot about accountability. Lack of communication. Frontline workers know best. Good. Feedback was never solicited. Owners shouldn't start with cost cutting. So this is interesting. The, there's been an, obviously we're, there's a hundred of you and so everyone's not exactly perfectly aligned, but there's been a move from a shift from this was a fad bar to now seeing an awful lot more lack of engagement, lack of ownership, lack of communication, lack of trust, no input from employees. You're now looking at human behavioral factors that I think give you a much deeper understanding of what's actually going on here. That is an example of how going and seeing how the facts and the data don't, uh, the, the facts and the data are different. And the ability to get the facts is really important. Um, so this is, uh, again, this is a little simplest, a simple example. It's a simplified version of reality. It's based on a excerpts from a TV show, which by itself is, by its very nature, is a simplification of reality. But I hope what, you're, what you get from this and these three rounds of videos is the idea that as you look more deeply and talk to people more, you get a different understanding of what the problem is. We've gone from it's a fad, no duh, this is, and, it's a, and it kind of looks crappy and run down, and there are no beautiful ladies here. Um, we've gone from that understanding to a more fundamental understanding of what the owners are like, what the environment is like, and what the, uh, how the place is run. And that's really, really important. So I'd like to come back to my screen here. Um, there is another reality show called Undercover Boss. I know now it looks like all I do is watch reality TV. Um, there's a show called um, Undercover Boss. And uh, the big joke about it is that you get some big, fancy, uh, highly high-priced, highly compensated, uh, executive, and you usually get him, usually it's a him, to address, to work on the front lines, and he realizes just how no one recognizes who he is, and which should indicate there's a problem in the first place, 
Um, but then he finds out how hard things really are. Um, and he learns his lesson about how noble and hardworking uh, his frontline employees are and how difficult he's made their jobs. Life isn't always that um, simple. Uh, a friend of mine used to work at, um, well, at American Express, and they were supposed to visit the front head office from New York. They were supposed to visit the, um, the various uh, remote facilities where they take customer calls and, and, inter and interact with customers on the phone. And, um, you know, they would come in, they'd fly in <laughs> on the company plane, or they'd take an early morning flight out. They'd sit in a conference room, get a couple of presentations, uh, and via PowerPoint with some data, uh, they would then uh, listen, get to listen to their, their one of the top people, uh, customer service people on one or two calls. Then they'd write up a report that says uh, what I saw and what I learned, and they'd get back to New York before dinner. Not quite as dramatic as Undercover Boss, where you're actually loading garbage cans, for example, but it's the same kind of thing. It's not really seeing what's happened. It's not really understanding what's going on at the crime scene. And in fact, um, I think that we can learn a lot from Edgar Schein with his, from his book, Humble, Humble Inquiry. Uh, to me, this is the money quote here. This idea that humble inquiry derives from an attitude of interest and curiosity. It's about building a relationship. And when you go to a facility and you sit in a conference room and you get a presentation, and you just listen uh, to listen in on one person's phone call, you're not really gonna get that. So what I'd like to suggest is that as you go and see, you really wanna be talking to people. You wanna be asking questions. Your goal is to learn, which you didn't really see very much of. In, you don't see an undercover boss so much and you certainly didn't see in, uh, in, in bar rescue. One other thing I want to point out, we, we're not going to spend a lot of time on this today uh, because we have a limited amount of time, but the notion of safety. Uh, if you remember in the third video clip, I showed you uh, John Tapper comes in. Yes, again, reality TV. And he says, these guys will do whatever I say they're going to do. So what's actually happening? And remember, those the, the bartenders and the wait staff. Notice they didn't raise their hands and actually start talking about the problem. They actually wrote it out anonymously on a piece of paper and John Tapper then presumably reviewed those things with the, the ownership. Think about how unsafe these guys feel that they can't tell the owners, hey, you know what? <laughs> this isn't working for me. That's not working for me. I'm having problems with this. They needed a third party facilitator, John Tapper to come in and make it safe, and even then they had to write it out. And so I think it's worth considering what, as you go and see, as you go to visit the crime scene, are people feeling, do they feel safe enough to actually share what, they, what they're seeing and what they're experiencing? Okay, next step is framing. And framing, I think, is one of the most uh, under-touched, under-explored aspects of problem solving. Um, when you think about all the books that have been written on A3s, uh, at least two or three of them I, th I can think of, um, and you think of webinars and whatnot, people don't spend a lot of time on the problem statement. They spend a lot of time on analysis and current conditions and getting the background and all of that, but I don't think they, we spend enough time talking about framing. Um, I think framing is critical. Um, this, is a, this quote is probably all of you have seen or many of you have seen. 
about how a problem well stated is a problem half solved. Um, and I think I'd like to explore this a little bit more before we go into our exercise. The first is that it's really important to be able to know what the difference is between a system, a cause, and a problem. Um, so if we go to back to bar rescue for a minute, uh, a symptom is that there's not enough beautiful females in here, um, that weird guy in the beginning. Um, the causes, well, maybe it's a lousy name, it's a trend bar, the bar runs out of liquor, the owners are sort of sleazy. Now, I asked you, a lot of you, what the problems are, and you came up with many things about accountability and, and people visiting and uh, you know, the owners coming in and seeing what's happening and all of that stuff. And you guys touched upon many things. And I would argue that as well-intentioned as you were, I think you may have missed the point. Because the real problem is that Swanky Bubbles is losing $4,000 a month. That is the problem. All those other things you saw, all those other things you wrote about, those are all causes. The problem is that they are losing 4,000 a month. If they were making money hand over fist, would it really be a problem that the owners weren't there regularly? Would it really be a problem that the bar ran out of liquor and things were substituted? Would it really be a problem that they had a stupid name? I don't think so. At least it's not a problem we would have worried about because they'd be making money hand over fist. But no, the problem is that they're losing four grand a month. Let's take a look at healthcare. The patient has a fever of 102 degrees. That is a symptom. The cause is perhaps that the patient traveled to an infected part of the Congo or someplace in Africa or got COVID or whatever happens to be. There's the cause, but we can't treat the cause or that's not the thing that we need to treat right now. We've, the problem that we need to treat is that the patient has a bacterial infection. There's a difference between the cause and the problem. And I think we in the lean community, we're so used to thinking about root cause that we forget what the problem is. One last example of this. Um, this is very relevant these days. These angry confrontations we see on Twitter and Facebook all the time between the stay at home people and the reopen now factions, you know, uh, armed people at the Michigan State Capitol. Well, that's a symptom. The causes are... Who knows? Multiple, 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 right? Uh, differing infection rates among urban and rural residents, Democratic versus Republican values, the ability of some people to work from home, whereas other people can't work from home and they may miss their rent payments. So they're, they're really amped up. There's all kinds of different causes here, communication issues and whatnot. But the problem I would argue that we need to deal with is the lack of national unity to deal with COVID-19. Now, you may agree or disagree with my, my framing here, but to me, that's the real fundamental issue. That is the problem. It's not the symptom and it's not the cause. And I think that if we can become better at identifying the problem as distinct from the cause, we're gonna be better off in terms of our problem solving. Second issue I wanna talk about is open vistas versus cul-de-sacs uh, or cognitive or intellectual cul-de-sacs. So if you take a look at something like these problems, and these all come from work that I've actually done with clients. Our sales team needs more admin support. We need better marketing campaign to support and promote our new artisanal coffee maker. Uh, we never have enough time to close the books each quarter. You probably can come up with plenty of examples similar to this. And I would argue that these are not problems. These are solutions that are masquerading as problems. And the reason you can tell that is that there's only one possible solution to each of these. If you are in a cul-de-sac that leads you into one answer, 
the only answer is to the sales team needing more admin support is getting more admin support or a better marketing campaign, whatever better means, or having more time to close the books. That is not an answer. That's a solution. And so these are cleverly framed as a problem. But if you ever hear people say, we don't have enough time, we don't have enough money, we don't have enough people, we need a better one of these things, that's sloppy thinking. And so a really good problem statement opens up avenues of inquiry. So instead of saying our sales team needs more admin support, um, you might say something like our sales team spends six hours a week on admin tasks. Okay, well, how do we solve that? Well, I don't know. We can get rid of some of the tasks. We could hire people. We could reduce uh, or eliminate some of those things. Um, we could reassess the process. Um, if you need a better marketing campaign for both the artisanal coffee maker, I don't know what better is, but would, instead you could say the problem is that our coffee maker sales are 30% of our forecast. How do we fix it? I don't know. Maybe it's a better marketing campaign. Maybe it's different pricing. Maybe it's new colors of the product. Maybe it's um, better, uh, maybe it's a different distribution channel, who knows? So the idea is that if you have a problem statement that opens up numerous possibilities, open vistas, that's a much better problem statement than the cul-de-sac that leads you in, inevitably into one particular answer. And finally, let's talk about generality versus specificity. Something like we have too much staff turnover or sales are down or expenses are way over budget that doesn't really help you very much. It's much better if you can be specific. We have staff turnover of 38% in the finance department. Okay, that helps me understand where we stand. Or we have 38% in the rest of the company in finance and the rest of the company only has 8%. Huh, all right, well, that's interesting. Let's see, what we, can, let's see if we can understand this better. Sales are down by how much, in what geography, in what product categories? Our expenses are over budget. How much over budget? What kinds of expenses? The more specific you can be, the better you are, at, or the greater likelihood it is that you can solve your problem effectively. So the framing, to me, really changes the, the, project, the trajectory of your problem solving. Take a look at these two. This is uh, from 1971, Nixon declared the war on drugs. Um, and he was referring to heroin, cocaine, meth, marijuana, all these things. In 2017, the government formally declared a public health emergency for the opioid crisis or opioid epidemic. So one is a war on drugs. The other is a public health emergency. If you go to um, the worksheet that I, the second worksheet that you have, and Mark, would you be so kind as to um, re, uh, uh, repost the link in the chat box? Yep. The first exercise for you is to take a look at the, these two framings. And what I'd like you to do is think through what are the ramifications of these two frames? How does it affect the way you approach the problem? And secondly, how else could you frame the problem? Actually, let's not worry about the second question since we have limited time today. Just the first question, how does it affect the way you view this problem? Because essentially it's the same sort of problem. It's drug abuse by people. So take a look at the worksheet that you have, the second one, and tell me how does it, what are the ramifications of that framing? And we want people using the chat again? Sure. Okay. Fight it versus treat it from Mark. Ah, Mark, well, you're a doctor. 
First one criminalizes it. And Sheila, what I would ask you is, that's a good point. What does it mean if you criminalize it? Greater sense of urgency. Good point, Heidi. Absolutely. War brings, a, the word war brings an emotional response. Yeah. Yeah. Lack of specificity from Chad. Okay. Puts the real context behind the problem. First one makes you feel that people on the drugs are the problem. That's a good one. Good point, Hanima. Interesting. The first frame makes drugs the focus. The second makes public health the focus. That's a really, really good point, Adrian. I appreciate you bringing that up, right? Because what are we working on? Do we want to work help people or do we want to attack drugs? One brings more empathy. Yeah, Holly, absolutely right. Abuse implies the abuser is the problem. Epidemic implies a social problem. Nice. James, I'm so glad you brought this up. War engages a different team or set of resources, right? When you think about war, you start thinking about tanks, guns, soldiers, borders. It deals with all kinds of issues like that. When you think about public health emergency, you start thinking about doctors, hospitals, uh, treatment centers, counseling. So when you think about the what it what kind what direction it points you, it points you towards an entirely different set of countermeasures. A war on drugs, I know what wars look like. It's guys in helmets, bulletproof vests, and guns. I know what an epidemic looks like. Uh, we're living in one right now, of course. It's a pandemic, I suppose. But it looks totally different. And in fact, if you take a look at the way we dealt with the war on drugs, we have had criminalization. We have people in jail. No one's going to jail as well. No users are, we're trying not to put opioid abusers or users in jail. We're trying to treat them sometimes more effectively, sometimes less effectively. But that was never really a thought when you think about the war on drugs. War on drugs means we got to do everything we can to stop the flow of drugs. And it doesn't really take into account the social and environmental and economic environment and context that creates the drug use. Galen, how it's framed determines if I should care. That's really, really good. Excellent. So you guys get it. What I want to do now is go on to the second part. Don't worry about question two or question three right now. I'd like you to go to exercise two on that handout. It's called uh, Just-In-Time Inventory, and it is a, an excerpt from an article in the Wall Street Journal uh, following the uh, earthquake in, uh, in Japan in 2007. Mark and I and uh, some others have talked an awful lot about the Wall Street Journal and Just-In-Time Inventory. But what I'd like you to do is read through this excerpt. It's about a page and a half. And what I'd like you to do is, to, well, the questions are written there. What would be the, what is the implied problem statement for the argument? How is the problem framed? What are the ramifications and how else could you do it? So I want to give you a few minutes to read through it. And then we'll have this conversation again.
Sheila, the questions are written, uh, again, how, what's the implied framing of the problem and how else, what are the ramifications? Uh, it's also written down on the worksheet that you have. Mike, just in time and low inventory to the problem, good. Implied framing, Kanban's and just in time adds risk. The ramifications of the solution is to eliminate just in time. Critical parts can't be single sourced. Jill says, just-in-time inventory doesn't account for emergency of necessary deviation. The real problem is plants are running out of parts. Says Mike, good. Deb says, this isn't the first incident and it could have been avoided. Anton wants to know if the article gives all the relevant facts. Good question. Lost sales. You guys have learned a lot from the first one. Sales <laughs> are lost, that's the real problem. Um, or plants are running out of parts. No alternatives, sales are lost. It's interesting, uh, Jorge and Mike, I would suggest that you are correct that the real problem is that sales are lost and or that the plants are running out of parts. I would suggest that some of the other folks uh, who have said that just in time is the problem uh, is, is the implied frame. Just in time doesn't work. Look what happens. Mighty companies like Toyota are brought to their knees by a, by a short-term disruption in supply. Um, Barbara says, problem is manufacturing such that if important parts are not available. Um, so it's interest, no business continuity plans. So I may be biased here the way I read it, and I'm more than happy to, to have you guys push back on this. Um, the way I read it is that it's an attack on just in time. It says that just in time doesn't work. If you do that, you're gonna be in trouble. And the ramifications are, well, just like the idea of, uh, boy, our admin team needs, our salespeople need more admin support. The only, only alternative is to add more inventory. Well, maybe. But if we say instead that manufacturing shuts down if important parts are not available, well, that raises some really interesting opportunities. Maybe we do want to build up inventory of certain critical parts. But what would happen if, for example, we made another, another possibility is to, instead of having such a specialized piston ring, what if we had piston rings that were universally um, uh, usable across all models or perhaps even all cars? Um, what would happen if we, if we said, if, if the problem is, um, you know, earthquake preparation, for example, or the, sale, the, uh, the, the, the supply can be disrupted, what would happen if we said, what if we moved, we had uh, suppliers that were not geographically concentrated? So we could, have, uh, we could have a supplier in Japan and in Europe and in North and South America. And that way we're protected against an earthquake because it's unlikely that every place is going to have an earthquake. So to me, this is, there are plenty of alternatives, but the way it's framed is that just in time is a problem. Mm, just in time is a problem. No, I don't think so. I think that you can have just in time and you can still maintain production even in the wake of problems, uh, dis supply disruptions. Just um, to, to jump in real quick. I mean, in March, there were articles and the Wall Street Journal often falls back on this framing of, look, JIT just in time doesn't work. 
But in March, the news before the pandemic had really hit in the U.S., the news was about factories are shut down in China. That's screwing up all of these um, supply chains. So look, just in time doesn't work. And you could look and say, well, wait a minute, maybe the problem really should be framed as they thought they were doing just in time, but sourcing product halfway around the world, maybe that's not really just in time. Exactly right. And so there are a lot of different ways. Partly, I think it's an issue that the Amy Chozik, the journalist, I don't think really understands what just in time is. Just in time does, in fact, have uh, uh, does account for emergency stock and safety stock and buffer stock and things like that. But the point is that the way the problem is framed changes the trajectory of the possible solutions. The way she frames it, the only possible answer is to get rid of just in time or at least build up crap tons of inventory. And I think that if she had framed it as um, the current supply chain is, uh, is not resilient, is not, is not terribly resilient, that opens up avenues of exploration uh, above and beyond just building up inventory. So we are about out of time. We can go much more deeply into this. And obviously there are the other steps of thinking backwards and asking why. But what I would like to do is, is um, close out with a couple of uh, with a couple of other thoughts here. Um, first, whoops. Um, again, you can read their downloads of uh, pictures and uh, worksheets that you can get from the from my website. It's all free and it will help you think through these things and remember the key points. So feel free to check that out. Um, we do have a couple of uh, announcements and then um, we'll have Q&A for anyone who is interested and willing to stay on. I'm here at your service. Okay. Thanks, Dan. And then um, after the announcements um, that I make, I'm going to ask you to announce about your Stanford course. So stay tuned for information about that real quickly. So um, if this is your first time attending a Kinexus webinar, welcome. If you attend regularly, thank you for doing so. Um, we have upcoming webinars. Um, if you are a Kinexus customer, July 9th is the next training team office hours with Adam and Matt. And then the next um, presentation, or actually it's going to be our second um, virtual panel discussion. You might remember we recently had a panel discussion about um, real continuous improvement in virtual workplaces. That's a topic that is still on people's minds. And we're going to have three different panelists this time. Um, Crystal Y. Davis, she's uh, got a firm called The Lean Coach, Inc. Um, Karen Martin from TKMG, Inc. And then um, we have Mike McGowan. He's a Kinexus customer. He's with Marietta Memorial Hospital in Ohio. So if you want to register for these webinars, you can go to www.kinexus.com slash webinars. If you can advance it, please. Um, also want to tell you again at kinexus.com, we have our continuous improvement webinars on demand library where this recording uh, will be there as well. Um, Josh, by the way, asked, we will be um, sharing the slide deck um, and then we'll also have um, a slightly edited recording. Um, so um, go to kinexus.com slash webinars, look on the right-hand side for where to click on the um, virtual um, on-demand library. And then um, we also invite you to come take a look at our blog. You can find that at blog.connexus.com. 
We also have um, a podcast series, if you can advance it, please. Um, you can go to kinexus.com slash podcast. Um, as always, the audio of um, this webinar will be in there if you want to subscribe via Apple, Google, Stitcher, Spotify, pretty much anywhere you get um, podcasts, you'll be notified about new ones. We do previews of the webinars and we put other content in the podcast um, series. And then here we've got um, uh, Dan's website, markovitzconsulting.com. You can see his email address there. And, you know, I want to, you know, just say about the book. Um, it's, it's, and I mean, this is praise. It's inexpensive. It's a quick read and um, it's thought provoking. So, sorry. It's 75 pages. You can read it during the time that you'll be watching Tiger King. Yeah. Um, so if you want to follow up with Dan, um, his email address is there. Um, and, and I do, Dan, um, in, invite you to mention the Stanford Continuing Education course that's available to people. Thanks. Uh, this weekend, Saturday and Sunday from 9.30 to 12.30 Pacific time, that's 30, uh, 12.30 to 3.30 Eastern time, uh, I will be running uh, a longer version of this class, three hours on each day, although there's a break, there are breaks in there, so it's probably two to two and a half hours each day. Um, going more deeply into the topics that we covered here, uh, there will be opportunity because of the, the technology that they're using, there'll be opportunity to actually have conversations instead of forcing you to type. So if you are interested in joining, I think the price at this for at the Stanford workshop is $320 maybe, something like that, or $300, I don't quite remember. Um, but it's uh, six fabulous hours on the weekend spent with me instead of your family. So, um, Dan, Dan can, can you put it, do you have a link that you can share? Someone just asked if you have a link to that. Yes. Let me, uh, let me, let me get that. Okay. And while Dan's doing that, I'm going to add a link to the chat. There's an article. If you want to find out what happened to swanky bubbles, there's a fairly good summary on that link. Uh, it seems like the episode is available for like a dollar 99. If anyone wants to buy it through, um, YouTube, uh, they don't have the, the full video there for free. I think you can also get it through Amazon and Apple. Um, you can just search for Bar Rescue at season one, episode five. And while Dan's looking at the link for his course, um, I encourage you, if you want to use the Q&A box to submit other questions, I've got a couple questions I pulled out of the chat along the way. We do have a comment. Um, uh, from Michael saying, Dan, again, great book. A3 thinking is distressingly easy to mess up. <laughs> You've done a cracking job of distilling it to a level where CEOs can quickly grab it. So um, any other, any other comment? Okay, Dan, thanks for adding the link. And any, any reactions to that comment there about how A3 thinking is distressingly easy? I'll, I have some thoughts I'll share, but please go ahead. Yeah, I, I, I think that, um, where we go wrong with A3s is starting actually with the, with the downloadable form that has boxes uh, because it tends to encourage us to fill in the boxes, literally and metaphorically. And I think it's better to start with a blank piece of paper and just think about what story it is you're trying to tell. Um, you know, you may not need a current condition or background. Sorry, you do need a current condition. You may not need the background. The background is nice and certainly it's advocated for in say, uh, managing to learn. But what you're really trying to do is make your thinking visible. 
And I think where we go wrong is to think that in order to make it visible, I have to fill in these boxes. Oh, and by the way, I need to type in six point font so it fits in the boxes. That's not what it's all about. And so I think that um, to the extent that you can unshackle yourself from the template and just think, how do I tell this story so that my reader understands what I'm thinking? That is a really good way to start dealing with A3s. Yeah, I mean, I think there, there are all sorts of traps people fall into. One is sort of writing the A3 so that it gets to a preordained solution. If, mm. that, if, if, if that's what you're looking to do, forget the A3, just jump to the solution. And better yet, don't jump <laughs> to the solution. Um, you know, there's the story that you want to tell. And sometimes, you know, the discipline of an A3 takes the story in a different direction when you find an unexpected root cause or, um, you know, really use the discipline of the A3 process to come up with um, something that might not have been intuitive. Uh, I think that uh, there's also a tendency to think about getting the A3 right. And I think it's better to think about the iterations. It's not about getting it right. The more you look into it, the more deeply you're going to understand it. Um, and so the willingness to go back and say, you know what, that problem statement in particular, that problem statement wasn't really correct. It's sending me off, launching me in the wrong direction. Let me reframe it. I don't really want to talk about a war on drugs. What I really want to do is talk about public health. That's really valuable. So give yourself the freedom and the license to go back over and over and over again in order to improve your understanding of the problem. We had a question earlier, um, Jessica asked, um, not just related to safety, um, is there a forum or a place where employee feedback is asked for, uh, maybe an anonymous feedback digital form? I definitely have some thoughts on that, but Dan, do you I'll have any you, thoughts I'll on let you go first on that oh. one, because this I know is near and dear to your heart. Well, yeah, so I mean, one thing that we've learned, I, I believe, um, very strongly, um, you know, through through Connex is that the you know there there are problems with anonymous. And Dan, correct me if I'm not using your framework properly, but you know people people are afraid to uh, people are afraid to speak up. Um, might not be because of um, I don't know if anonymity is the right countermeasure to a lack of speaking up. Being afraid to speak up is different than the fact of people right now are not speaking up. There are causes, and then we can think about possible solutions. I, I, I've I found in general um, with, with, with Kaizen programs, whether it's facilitated through Kinex's software or Post-it notes or uh, sheets of paper on a bulletin board, there may be a time and a place for anonymity, but hopefully when you encourage people to attach their name to something, and if, if you've created a constructive continuous improvement culture. People will put their names associated with um, the, the problem I've identified or the idea they have maybe 90% of the time so that you can follow up with them. I, I would tend to use an anonymity for things that are um, more whistleblower type situations, um, HR complaints, um, I mean, you know, if, if it's anonymous, you can't really follow up and engage in the context of continuous improvement. There's also an issue, I think, with anonymity is that it's hard to really understand the problem. 
right? Because maybe the problem that is being submitted is specific, possibly is specific to the uh, person who's writing up the problem. And we lose the ability to say, hey, this was someone on the second shift or the third shift, or this is someone who has been at the company for five years, uh, or someone who's older and isn't facile with, with technology, or this is someone who's new and may not have been through uh, had a chance to really be trained or go through the whole mentorship program or, 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 or. The anonymity hides the, our ability to really understand the facts. So we end up with a, a, a kind of a, a wan, somewhat anemic view of what the issue is. Mm -hmm. And as Mark points out, of course, that if people are so afraid, if they are afraid to bring up the issues, that would indicate that there are some real cultural problems. There's, there's fear. And then one thing I've heard very consistently across different organizations is that people don't want to associate their name with it because then they're going to get pulled in to work on it and they feel like they don't have time. And that could be a reality, not just a feeling, but the, I don't want to, you know, that, that's a symptom of a more underlying problem of, of why has the organization, why have leaders not prioritized or helped create time for improvement? Yeah. Agreed. Um, Mark Jabin, not to be confused with Mark Graven, commented, um, and, and Dan, if you want to react to this, messing up the A3 is a symptom. The problem is how to move one's thinking from solution thinking to dilemma thinking. I would totally agree with that. Because if, the, if we look at the A3 as a physical manifestation or representation of your thinking, um, it makes sense that if the A3 is, isn't right, however you define right, um, if we've checked the boxes, it's indicative that mentally we're checking the boxes. And so we really do need to think a little more deeply about how it is we want to um, slow down our thinking so that we're able to be more methodical and more exploratory in the way we approach our, our, the gaps between what our current reality is and where we want to be. But another question that came in, and, and this may be difficult to answer, Dan, unless Dan, you have some hidden knowledge or expertise to tap into. I don't know how I would answer this one, but I mean, it's an interesting question that the idea of implicit bias is getting a lot of intention in general recently, but specifically in healthcare treatment. Do you address or will you be addressing conclusion traps related to implicit bias in the treatment of patients? I haven't thought about that. That is a really good question. Um, I'll pause and very uh, dramatically polish my glasses. So give me a chance to think. Right. Um, you know, I, had, I, I actually have not considered the aspect of implicit bias. And I think it would be, it's, it's a, would be really interesting. It would be interesting to explore countermeasures to implicit bias with this kind of problem solving approach. Mm -hmm. um, obviously, police departments around the country, many police departments around the country, and I suppose hospitals as well, have been working on this through implicit bias training. Um, I don't, I think the jury is out on how effective that training has been in, in counteracting it. Um, I think one, one issue that occurs to me just offhand is that it's hard to spot implicit bias. It's easy to spot, spot a defect in a, pro, a widget that's going down the assembly line. 
Uh, it's easy to spot a defect in a patient who gets sick at the end of at the, uh, at the end of a treatment protocol. But what does the implicit bias look like? By definition, implicit bias is hard to see. So I wonder, it occurs to me that one of the things we'd want to do is figure out how could we spot that bias. So, so is there a symptom, again, correct me if I don't have your framework quite right. There, there, there's, there's a symptom. So let's say disparities in health outcomes based on gender or race or other characteristics. Is that, is that the symptom or is that the problem? Because that, that's a measurable fact. If you look at differences in, say, infant mortality. In the yeah, that's a good point. So it occurs to me that let's say people were implicit, there was implicit bias. But let's say that in the healthcare situation, it didn't matter whether you were rich or poor, black or white, male or female, tall or short, thin or fat, their health outcome was equivalently good. Who cares? Be biased, doesn't matter. It's a problem insofar as it leads to a disparity in health outcomes or a disparity in outcomes based on your interactions with the police or whatever. So the cause, would, the problem is the disparity in outcomes. The cause is implicit bias. How do we spot the symptoms? <laughs> Not the problem, but how do we spot the symptoms of implicit bias? And obviously, what are the, the, the causes of implicit bias are going to be very, you know, this is a, a hugely deep uh, uh, and thorny problem because it's, 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 it's woven into the fabric of our society um, and our community and our upbringing. Yeah. So, so really Mark, Mark, Mark Javen added, um, what about, he's, he's saying, you know, bias is inherent, is it a symptom? What a person does with that bias is the problem. How do they act or not act on their belief? There's, there's the action and then there's the outcome. Or it could be lack of action that leads to an outcome. Yeah. Um, but I, I know that was sort of putting you on the spot. That's a, it's, a, it's a difficult question to... Nevertheless, I mean, it's re- this is something that I think as a society we're dealing with now, right? We've got people marching to defund the police, irrespective of the fact that that's a bad... <laughs> that's a bad term because it doesn't really represent what, what the argument is about. That is a, uh, that is a countermeasure to bias, implicit or explicit, but I'm not sure if that's necessarily the right countermeasure. And I don't even know how to start testing it. Well, I mean, th- th- there's an example, I mean, in that situation, how you're framing the problem, how you're fr- framing possible solutions. If you're framing a solution as, Give more funding to social services. That's a you know that that's a different framing that's going to be reacted to differently than defund or lessen funding to police. Yeah, uh, Jill, there was a it's a really I don't know if you're still on, but that was a really powerful question, a naughty one that uh, I'm not sure if I'm naughty K N O K N O T T Y yes. Um, so maybe let, let's end on this, Dan. There's a, um, a comment. We, we can discuss this here. Um, Mike Dennison says, uh, personally, when I teach and coach, I lead people to focus much more on the learning gained from investigating and analyzing the problem. Let, I'm going to interject left-hand side of the A3, right? 
than spending more time on the learning than the solution. I want to know how they navigated their way to the solution, not the fix itself. I tend to use the term teaching problem learning rather than problem solving because problem solving is implicit in driving solutions first. Um, we also have one comment there. I've seen that. I think there, there, there's good problem solving and there's ineffective problem solving. To me, good problem solving does what Mike explained, really you know, making sure you understand the current state and the problem and causes before you even brainstorm solutions. But I think problem learning is a really, that's a good phrase. It is. I, I like that. And, and, and I think it brings us back to the notion of shameless self-promotion here um, of the conclusion trap. What we're trying to avoid is that trap where we jump to a conclusion or, or a solution. Uh, what we really want to do is stop and think. And what speed bumps, what hurdles can we place in our way? What, what, uh, what tricks can we, can we employ to slow that, that jump to solutions down so that we can spend more time learning and less time solving or spend more time at least up front learning yeah. before we start thinking about the solution to the problem or the countermeasure. Well, so I think with that, we're a little over our 75 minutes. So thank you, Dan, for staying on. Thank you to everybody who's still here at the end. So I want to thank our facilitator, Dan Markovitz. encourage you to check out his book, The Conclusion Trap. You can go to theconclusiontrap.com. You can also go, um, yep, thanks for holding that up, markovitzconsulting.com. All 75 pages of it. So thank you for that, Dan. Um, thank you, everyone, for attending. And again, go to kinexus.com slash webinars to register for future webinars. And for those of you who are leaving, please do fill out the survey the feedback form that you'll be forwarded to here at the end. And sad to say, since we live in Jeff Bezos's world, if you do buy the book, please be kind enough to, uh, to review for, for the, the, lords of, the lords of Seattle. <laughs> All right. Thanks, Dan. Thanks, everyone. Have a wonderful afternoon. Take care.